0: Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts, so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data.
1: And I'm Lee Harper, AI human with a decade of experience doing AI. And today we're joined by Julia Abadmeister, so she's been in the data analytics field for over 25 years. She's got a very deep background in the financial services industry, having held global data leadership positions at institutions such as Voya Financial, Deutsche Bank and Citibank. She is now the CEO of data for real a strategic advisory firm offering, and I love this phrase, reality-based guidance to organizations that want to derive value from data. She also serves <laughs> on multiple advisory groups, including chairing the Technology Advisory Council for Women Leaders in Data and AI. Welcome, Julia.
2: Thank you, I'm excited to be here.
1: So, one thing that you've got that is kind of unique among our guests so far is you've worked at a range of you know, big banks, which you know I guess we could fairly call legacy institutions, you know, very, very old. Um, and famously, a lot of legacy companies okay. have a lot of challenges when it comes to, to data, to managing data, to integrating data, to evolve in their data practice. Start by telling us a little bit about your experiences there um, and some of your views um, on how legacy companies either both do and can you know, utilize these technologies better.
2: Yeah. A lot of those legacy companies, uh, and not only large banks, It's I see it across a lot of companies, even the smaller company, for example, Findra, which is a regulatory agency, uh, they also do acquisition. So, but a lot of companies grow by acquisition and what happens, acquisition happens and then integration doesn't happen. So you have a huge variety of different technologies across the entire organization and each area can keep doing what they're doing. So the data they're generating technology they have is more or less okay for what they're trying to do. But if you want to use this data anywhere from having robust corporate reporting to regulatory reporting to, in the case of banks, uh, any of the compliance uh, anti-money laundering uh, activities, or you want to run analytics and now you want to inform your new products, you run into problems because this data just not interoperable. That's the main issue across a lot of companies, it's getting the data that's interoperable for any type of work had, that's across multiple silos.
1: Well, you have had usually, leadership roles, hey, you know, of, literally you know, global head of data integration. So you've obviously seen this problem up very, very close and personal. Um, what are some of the ways that you've seen to, yeah. I wouldn't say, say solve it. This is a, a journey, I'm sure, not just a simple solution, um, but how have you sort of started people on that journey of data integration at that kind of scale?
2: Well. A lot of, so there is a lot of technology out there now that kind of helps, (laughs) but the main one, and I like the name of your, I love the name of your podcast because it's more cultural uh, and prioritization, allocation of money and decision-making on how you allocate funds, which there is never enough money to do all the work that you want to do in your either business or technology landscape. So there is always prioritization. So let me give you an example. So I started at Citi uh, about, what, year and a half after the financial crisis. And as we all know, and I'm not sharing any type of confidential information because that's extremely well known, it's too big to fail. There was a lot of regulatory oversight and the regulators were very concerned. And one of the reasons they were concerned is that it's, and again, it's not just Citi, it's many other large banks. Uh, the information they had coming from different groups within the banks was different and it wasn't a little bit different. It was a lot different. And a lot of it is very simple. So for example, you know, favorite example, uh, question, mm-hmm. what's your exposure to Greece? You remember Greece had a crisis. Uh, Greece actually, I've just recently read, and I was so happy to read this, Greece is doing much better than a lot of other European Union countries in terms of the growth. So they kind of came out of that. But way back when, after what's your exposure to Lehman Brothers, the next question was, what's your exposure to Greece? And, you know, if I weren't part of that process, I would have guessed, you know, calculating exposure is complicated. It's not. People know how to calculate exposure. That's really not a problem. The problem is knowing what Greece is. Yep. So Greece, (laughs) again, very large, multinational bank. Every single country, every single product within this country has its own way saying this is our transaction with Greece. Sometimes it's Greece. Sometimes it's GR. Sometimes it's one, because it's a Greece portion of the bank. And so it's one for them, uh, sometimes it's like 155, because it's just not. So, and being able to combine all of that information across the entire bank quickly enough to be able to answer regulators and consistently, if the regulators ask what's the risk on finance, it's manual mapping. It's not cons- consistent. So that's the problem. So we, what we tried to do, and that's the program, the first program I ran at Citi, was Data standards, let's agree that we're going to use, uh, you know, there is external data standard, ISO 2 for the countries. And the first thing we tried, we said, okay, why don't you go and change whatever you do with this? And they said, are you kidding us? So fine. Don't change, but map your own identifier. And again, it's not that complicated. I mean, you don't know what country you're talking about, <laughs> and usually if you're within that country, that's the country you're Excellent. dealing with, like you We don't have numbers of others, just map and give us data that anytime, not us, but anytime you send you information anywhere, append one more thing at the end uh, and add, you know, whatever number grease GR It's I think that's the code if (laughs) I remember correctly. Sounds simple enough, right? (laughs) It's easier than making the wholesale change, but, uh, and it's a small change. But you still, somebody has to prioritize it. And and it's a business systems change. It's not a global function change. So it's needed for finance and risk. People who need to authorize it and pay for it are people up front. And they don't care because, I mean, they don't care specifically because they have their own targets to meet. Uh, And they need to make money or they need to, so they have their bucket of money and they have long list of things they want to get done. And this one's yet another thing that's going to cost them money. And somehow they need to prioritize it about the things that are going to either make them money or make them operate better in their specific business, in their specific country. So this is by no means specific to city. That's a problem across pretty much any company because Data management is really important across, but the decisions I'm making are being done in the specific business unit, and it's their budget.
1: Yeah. And that can occur in, just to give it, uh, an, another example, a very different one, but the same kind of underlying cause. I did work many years ago now for a very large automotive firm, um, and it was looking at their services organization. So, you know, oil changes, car repairs, you know, um, emission mm-hmm. emissions tests, and their technicians, wanted to be fixing cars. They loved fixing cars. They didn't want to do data entry. So we had this issue where, you know, we were, our, our machine learning models were looking at, you know, is it the first year, second year, third year service the car has been to? Because that, you know, routine service was a mark of customer loyalty. Well, of course, many cars was always the first year service over and over again, because that was the first option in the drop-down menu, and the technicians used to as quickly as possible do that so they didn't have to, um, you know, again, they could do what they wanted to do, fixing cars and making money fixing cars rather than helping the sales and marketing teams, you know, with their data entry. Mm -hmm. So yeah, very universal problem has many different ways it can show itself. So how did you go about getting people to start changing? Because if it never rose to the top of their priority list, how did you start to chip away at that culturally?
2: Well, a lot of things in the banks, when you do uh, data governance or data management for regulatory purposes, you have regulators, and at that point, the regulators were <laughs> very unhappy and brought a lot of sticks. So there was a lot of uh, conversations about, yes, I know, and I that was a big part of my job, I spending time with local teams uh, explaining that, yes, I understand it's not your immediate problem, but uh, if regulators take action against city in the United States, that's going to affect you as well. So there was a stick there and it it sometimes helped, what I think would have helped actually a great deal would have having centralized budget to give people and have them use it and not to be like, if they used a little bit more than they specifically needed to add grease and fix some of their own problems, that was good because that just initiative I mean, you had to kind of watch it. uh, that's something that a lot of companies, are reluctant like them to do to have this big bucket of money, then you then allocate and then you have to administer. So they try to go with a business related. So that was one that some of it was just uh, basically finding analytical carrots, just figuring out what their problems were and saying, you know what, if you do that, that actually makes things for you easier as well. So, uh, for example, there was a huge initiative in uh, APAC region. Uh, that worked a lot on standardizing the data. And once they've done with it, they reaped enormous benefits out of it around analytics and marketing and just in time uh, notification about fraud, a lot of that. So, but that was work done to standardize data within. And so that was kind of trying to tie to the initiatives that they care about.
0: So, Julie, do you find yourself? Uh, using your background in economics, I, I had to do a little bit of LinkedIn stalking, yeah. and so you're not the first person with an economics background that's gotten been deep in data and then advising mm-hmm. others. So on that, I, I love that phrase, analytical carrots, right? Because mm-hmm. um, then, on a related note to all these data quality issues or the appearance of data quality issues, there's there's another uh, uh, person in network whose podcast is going to get published NetWeek next week, wherein we talk about. Date, what really is the data quality problem? Because in, the, in this example of you know finding transactions related to Greece, uh, the quality issue comes up when that data is trying to be used for different purposes other than what the line of business is using. So when you talk about like well we need this fixed and you got how do you find the carrots? Because when you go to the business unit, you're just putting more expense on them without yes. necessarily the benefit. So how, how do you find yourself, you know, talking like an economist or, you, you know, trying to find, like tease out those carrots uh, so that a value is clearly articulated, articulated and found for that business unit to change? You know, what's been your experience in, in trying to find or manufacture the value for the groups to do the change?
2: Yeah. Oh. So, that's actually gets even more interesting when you move into doing data management, mm-hmm. not for regulatory purposes, but for business growth.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, and data quality in and of itself, data quality is actually a complicated discipline. And I've been on the uh, once in a while putting out controversial statements around <laughs> data quality. Uh, and a lot of data management prof, like I, if I'm moderating the panel and I go and they say, well, data quality scorecards are useless. <laughs> Un- unless you have full business buy-in into fixing the data quality issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, data quality scorecard can get very beautiful and they probably make a really nice wallpaper and they're useful for the regulators mm-hmm. as well. But yeah. from the business fixing perspective, that's exactly the problem, set that you're mentioning because the, uh, it's fine for a regional business process. It's not fine for a different business purpose. So, uh, manufacturing, uh, one of the things, the way I have dealt with it actually is to have a very specific, uh, impact
0: mm-hmm.
2: and having buy and that's where data governance comes in, uh, and that company established data governance. It comes in because you have to have an agreement as a company, we agree. This is the impact that bad data can have. And we will agree that this is an impact for our entire company and we will have a buy-in from the business areas. And then it's kind of a agreement for the whole company that becomes one of their uh, goals or objectives that not only they have to do what they need to do operationally to run their business, but part of the objectives is to create the data that can be used not only to do our financial reporting without having uh, you know, fifteen people do Excel manipulation for three months, and then we can't actually close in time. So mm-hmm. quarterly close happens a quarter after the quarter closes. That's not good.
0: Yeah. Well, and and not, <laughs> not only that, but you can have a lot of um, a lot spiral out in a crisis, or you know, yeah. both crisis or missed opportunity as well. You know, things move yeah. things move quickly. You do not want to. Data data has a half life, and so if you don't don't make use of it, well, then you've missed okay. that opportunity. It's it might help you in arrears at some point to look at it, but if you need to make timely decisions, it doesn't help.
2: Yeah, it doesn't happen. And actually, that's one of the things uh, that after I uh, you know came out of the industry and started my own company, uh, one of the first things I was thinking about is exactly that problem: how do you explain to the business leaders? why they need to care about data management capabilities. And A, so a few things, problems there. A, business schools generally don't teach data management. So funnily enough, the call just before I heard we started taping this uh, was somebody who just graduated from an MBA program at one of large universities. I'm not going to name names. because (laughs) it's like there is more than one. And it's a a program that's actually focusing on data as well. So I was very surprised that uh, he shared and I took a look at the course catalog. And there is something that's called data-driven decision-making. And there is something there, which is good, Mm -hmm. and something that calls digital strategy. And so a bunch of others, but I start looking at the description of data-driven decision-making, and they talk about, so, how you? What are the analytical approaches, and what are the statistical models that you help you in making your uh, in making your decisions? And how could you use them? There is no mention of master data management. There is no mention of data quality. There is no mention of metadata management at all. So, even though the program itself seems to be aware that data is important for business decision making the the full kind of there is an elephant that they're not even touching like forget trying to figure out what it is they're not even touching the elephant uh, they're kind of going around and saying yeah like you can use data and you can manipulate data and we'll teach you how to use big data and you know how to use R and we'll teach you how to use statistics but how to make the data usable
1: well that's the <laughs> when, when whenever yeah. I hire new people fresh out of MBA or other master's programs, they often come in knowing how to code, they've come in knowing how to do these models. Honestly, you know, they've been to college more than I have. They know some of these models better than I do, right? Especially since some of the more state of the art ones. But the biggest jump is always that first bit, right? Oh, we assume the data is nice. Well, the data's never nice. Right. You know, it's it's never, yeah. ever, you know, clean or high quality, right? You've always got to do something, often many things there to make it usable in the models they're learning about. And so when I talk to people about, hey, what's the jump between, you know, a college program and the practical world, it's exactly that because you know, for whatever reason, colleges don't necessarily, you know, ask questions or, you know, really explore that side of the equation, possibly because it's my hypothesis is, is that it's less interesting that to academics. It's interesting to us as practitioners who are helping to drive value for mm-hmm. companies like, you know, on the front lines, but with academics who are thinking more broadly, who are thinking bigger picture, um, you know, the models probably are of more interest than how do you fix a specific set of data quality issues? Should that be the case? I don't know.
2: Well, it depends what the purpose of the program is, right? So that's Uh, So I keep trying actually, and it's a passion project. It's not really money maker, (laughs) but I keep trying to get into one of those because, so the reason I started with the colleges and business problem a business and how business uh, people get taught is that what ends up explaining, I have to explain multiple times uh, in as simple language uh, as I can find what is master data management and why is it important to the business strategy? And it's a very difficult conversation because there is no background. And, pe- you know, and those are people who are, have really complex, stressful jobs that have a lot of work to do. Uh, and they're trying to define the business uh, strategy for the company and execute the strategy and work, work with cons- yeah. clients. So they're doing tons of stuff. And I'm coming in from the left field and I'm trying to teach something. And, you know, you forget things. If you're not dealing with the day in, day out, and you don't have a baseline. So that's partially where I want to go back and kind of maybe fi- fix it forward to the next data leaders, maybe in 10, 15 years, so they don't have to do quite as much. But the other thing is that that connection between what is your business goal and what do I need to do from capabilities perspective, business capabilities, operational and data to be able to do, uh, to be able to achieve your business, your goal, so you want to sell to more customers. Wonderful. You need to know things about customers. Absolutely, we need to need data. We need to have data. It's not enough just to have data. You need to be able to use the data. And there are multiple things around using the data that you need to build, and which is what people like me in the industry are doing. But you run into this prioritization problem because it's not just. Uh, data people, chief data officers, chief data analytics officers, whatever they were called. In, you know, everybody has their own special name. Or um, they build it in the bag. But the decisions as we've started, a lot of decisions need to be uh, built up front. And one of the things around data quality, uh, while it's important to have data quality measurement and issue management and resolution process, what's a lot better is engineering data quality into your business process and upfront and to your applications up front. Uh, so, so it's easier to get high quality data and make it easier for mechanic to enter the right data. Maybe You know, and especially with the tools we now have, it's a little easier. So instead of having him type in something or even do a drop-down list, list, I mean, it's better than typing, obviously. So drop-down, we've already had of like 99% of companies, the fact that it was drop-down and defined values. uh, But maybe he just talks or you have a Mm -hmm. mic in the room when customer, uh, because when he talks to the customer, he knows it's the first time or the second time. With the third time, because you kind of can't get it and you have AI listening and it summarizes, okay, here is what I got. Here is what I filled out for you. Is that correct? And he says, yes. And he moves on. And all of a sudden you got high quality data. And anyway, so for me, I think there is a lot more bang for the buck in trying to engineer data quality upfront into that. And I mean, data like common keys, unfortunately, not quite as easy.
1: That's an interesting point. So one might think that startups who are beginning on their journey, who are starting with a blank slate or close to a blank slate might have the chance to get in there and do this up front, probably at much lower cost and effort than doing it later after an M&A or other things. Do they do that? Possibly Possibly a leading question.
2: It's a leading question. Absolutely. And now I'm sure that startups, especially probably the ones who sell data. So if they're in data trans- kind of transforming business, they probably do a good job. The startups I have seen and I have worked with and I work with startups, um, they don't. So it's usually, and there are many reasons for it. A, there is uh, data has their trap. And it's a deserved trap in large companies that it takes time and money. And it's totally deserved. It takes time and money if you're in a mature company. Where you, have multiple, you know, all we've just discussed, not only time and money, there is also risk associated with that. Of course, if you need to reengineer your front-end system that handles millions of transactions, you have a risk associated with that. Uh, so there is that trap. And a lot of startup founders come from uh, industry often, Uh, and they have that notion that to do data right takes time and money, and they want to get to the market, and they want to get to revenue generating so they can get funded, they can grow, all of that. So startups often don't do this. What's interesting, so I was at the conference yesterday, and uh, there were vendors at the conference, no surprise, uh, and some of those vendors were kind of cities, A, B, C startups, and I kind of asked, so how you're dealing with, and there were, it's a data conference. So there were data vendors. Uh, so I asked, how are you doing like, uh, your own data? For example, when you do your own financial reporting, like, what are you using? Uh, Excel, I'm like, you know, <laughs> there is expression and, tr it sounds a lot snappy in Russian, but there is a translation, uh, there is a saying in Russian, bootmaker without the boots.
0: Yep. Yes. The cobbler's so kids have, have no shoes.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. So that is it. So this is a completely side note. Uh, <laughs> a lot of sayings in Russian have slightly different uh saying that says exactly the same thing
0: mm-hmm. in English. Yeah.
2: And it's actually it's very interesting. Like sometimes like, oh yeah, that's a like and a different comparison uh of you know, don't count your chicken before you hack. Yes. Yeah. In Russian, it's don't divide the skin of the bear you didn't kill yet. <laughs> In Ukrainian, it's don't say uh, tada till you jump over a puddle, like something like that. I actually like that one like I'm from Ukraine. I like that one the best. My daughter has no idea of Ukrainian, but she uses that all the time. Because it's just a very snappy statement. So anyway, it's just very interesting how saving. But going back to the startups and where and it's a pity because A, it's an advantage they got and they wanna compete with incumbents. And they have that advantage. They can be much more efficient and data driven from start if they put it in. The second point, it's actually not that expensive if you do it in the beginning, because you don't have to do all that much. You don't have to have an expensive tool. You just don't, it's not that much work and it's usually not that much money and it doesn't postpone your MVP uh, all that much. I've had experience actually doing it with the startup that I'm advising, not a big deal.
0: But at the same time, just on a counterpoint to that, Julia, uh, we say it's easy to avoid some of those traps at the beginning because I'm building something new but right? uh-huh. but at some point when you're a new company, you you know if you if you do the right things and get some luck, you will become an old company. How do you continue to do the right things and so some of the the observations when you ask the question like how do we communicate or how do we get some of these things down like the observations that I've had is that there's There's a lot of different factors, but two things kind of come out to me. It's not when we when we try to build strong walls and we're not multidisciplinary, right? So that there's and by multidisciplinary is like I should always have whatever my purpose is, that whether that's that end customer or if I'm a government entity, what the what serving function I'm doing. So what is my purpose? And then how do I understand like how am I multidisciplinary so I understand the different ins and outs and interactions I have with them? And so then in that understanding, if I have that understanding, that understanding can be frustrating if I don't have a way to introduce change. So then change mm-hmm. management becomes that important thing. So, so if I'm multidisciplinary, I can take my knowledge. And then if I have good change management you know, and the ability to introduce change, which is both an IT and a business aspect, mm-hmm. then, then I can reap the benefits of being multidisciplinary. So I might not have, like I might design a good system, but then like that, that huge new contract comes in and I don't have all the time to take care of all those integrations as my startup. And then I'm gonna have a mess of a data, but as long as I have the, cha- the right change management processes and yeah. then I can, so that, that's just like any perspective I've seen on why, you know, how, how might we get out of the trap. So
2: yeah. Yeah, change man- and change management <clears throat> is huge and change management is always forgotten. Yes. You put something new in, you put a process in, but then, uh, A, you have to convince people. Mm-hmm. And people need to follow and you need to have metrics and you need to sh- uh, like keep keep reintroducing and keep talking through. And also it's a culture change. So the reason I was able to do it for the startups is because I've been, you know, I have a good relationship with the founder. I'm an advisor. I had time because I stepped out of my industry job to actually spend a lot more time with the development team. And we talked through that and we did it but then as that startup uh, you know starts you know, mvp goes to production startups so start generating money there is going to be more product coming on mm-hmm. uh, there is going to be more development uh the founder and ceo will not be writing the tickets yeah he's going to hire somebody who is a CTO, there are going to be more people and that ethos that you have to watch for data needs to permeate the company and you know, everybody will not know me, you know because I'm an I'm a board advisor, right, so that has to be part, part of the culture and that needs to be changed, managed because new people come in, they bring obviously preconceived notions, you can hire for it, you can also look for that knowledge and understanding in the people you bring in, it's sometimes it's difficult uh, because a lot of people, you know, I haven't met yet, actually a business executive who won't agree with the statement that data is really important for us. Mm-hmm. Just that's common, right? Data is everywhere. Data is really important. Actually right now it's going to be AI is really important for our mission. Uh, we kind of moved on, mm-hmm. uh, but understanding how you need to prioritize how data gets entered into your systems, that's not necessarily connected to that statement, data is really important for us.
0: Yeah. It's not, the other aspect, well, and and one quick comment on the change management, just so people know, I say this as the person who's spent a lot of my career being the duct tape and bailing wire person, and I have Mm -hmm. rebelled against change management, so I do not say that lightly. (laughs) that like changed me because I was like, I, I know it's needed and I always want somebody else to do it and kind of like, like going to a gym and having a personal trainer. I just want them to tell me what to do because I don't want to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but the back to one of the other things that I've experienced and Lee and I both experienced this, it seems obvious to say data has value. And and it's also like I, I'm also kind of very tired of the data driven decision making because people are using data all the time to make decision making. It's just how good is that data? And as you know, phrase that we like to say, how informed is your model? Right? Like, are you taking in good information to make decision making? But the the part where I think I, I see people have trouble mapping to value is that frequently the data that they're going to that we need to go do and build the new on is going to be around dis- future making decisions, right? Absolutely. So then, in other words, there's a lot of um, ifs or ands or um, shades of gray in that because the value in the decision is in, is forward looking. So, mm-hmm. and and so then it's it's back to like the, the economist question again, isn't it? Now I'm trying to forecast the value in be able to use mm-hmm. this because it is not necessarily about an event in the past or as cut and dry as like cutting operational costs. It's, It's what could I do and and role playing and modeling that out. And that's kind of like, that increases people's, you kind of fear, uncertainty and doubt, and it's kind of easier to say, I'm just going to do the status quo.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we can see this, uh, on the large scale, humanity is not really good considering the future. Mm -mm. (laughs) right? (laughs) So that's a human like feeling. Uh, It's a lot easier to keep doing what you're doing and keep getting what you're getting uh, until something forces your hand. Uh, I mean, we're not going to go into bigger
0: issues facing
2: humanity. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't don't think that's solvable, uh, even with data. Um, But um, from the company's perspective, yeah, you're absolutely right forecasting the value, and especially tying uh, the changes you make on data with the improved business outcomes is incredibly difficult. And the very first piece, okay, first you have to agree on the metric and you have to agree that data plays into that business metric. Second, you have to have a baseline. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: How many metrics are there in the company where it's being measured enough to have a baseline and then you have to be able to remeasure it. And then you need to be able to allocate which part of that improvement, corporate improvement goes towards, uh, data, better data management and which one is completely unrelated factors. I can bring the example, uh, of something that we've done and, something that I advocate and I strongly believe in, it's around using data-driven, analytics-driven sales and marketing. And it's, from technology perspective, it's a very nice, it's a combination of CRM, your CRM function, uh, your master data management, so you have a full record of all of your customers and your prospects, and you never ever get random names in your CRM that's not in your uh, master record. And then you have analytics, so you bring all exter- all external data you can find, plus all of your CRM data, plus your golden records and all the master keys and reference keys into your analytics environment, and you produce uh, for salesperson, here is the 10, process, 10 actions you need to do today. And you do it on the weekly, like on well, daily, on whatever basis, and you keep informing the model of, okay, so we did those actions and so you have ongoing learning behavior. So a couple of things, uh, it like, so if not a simple build,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right. Uh, B salespeople have to provide the data back. So salespeople are not very different from service people that Lee was talking about. They really don't like uh, doing CRM records.
1: Nope. They They just don't. They want to be selling on the phone to clients, in front of clients. That's what they love.
2: Yeah. And they just don't want to do it. So again, and actually I'm surprised and maybe I just don't know about it, but I've been kind of talking about it. Nobody said, no, you're on. It exists. Uh, That there isn't a tool where salesperson can talk and it picks out the data and populates the CRM. So they don't have to type it. Uh, serum systems actually usually have very nice UX experience, but still you have to do stuff. Uh, it's much easier for them to do. Anyway, so even with all of this, but even if you have your baseline, how my, how many deals were closed before we introduced, you probably do. And now you track the baseline after you introduce, but probably your salespeople people, also people who change jobs very often. Uh, so you don't know whether now you have a better outcome, not because you have better recommendations, but because you have a better salesperson. So allocating that, having that whole discussion is actually very complicated. And then you have, oh, the purpose we put that in because we don't want to hire any more salespeople and maybe we want to reduce our salespeople, uh, uh, the number of salespeople we have, but then we didn't reduce because we got more business. So we didn't meet our objective, but we got more business. How is that related? Is that economic cycle? You know, that's why we got more business. So metrics are very, very complicated uh, to show that type of value. And some of it, again, it's more understanding-based, right?
0: It's understanding-based. And, you know, when you don't have the cultures that actually look and track that, because what you yeah. mentioned is both a tooling and a process problem, but also a cultural problem, yeah, because we've certainly, we've certainly been parts of, part of cultures, sales cultures, where that discipline is, is actually had by the, by the AEs, by the account executives, um, because the culture of the company watched all of that sales flow like a hawk. Right, and so then everybody saw the value, and, and the and the the salespeople saw the value of the the commitments and the information that they were putting in. But then it was a it was also turned into a virtuous circle in that okay, hey, we need more timely information, and then you have a conversation with the account executives, the sale, the sellers, and it's like, well, but the, here's my impediments. Okay, well that's fine, we can go fix that, right? But you have to have that dialogue, and it's back to like the kind of that change management piece. If I got that flow. So we're introducing, in that instance, the salespeople to the pain that delivery has and planning. It's like, well, you are telling us that you, you're you're worried about making commitments to customers because you're not sure if we're going to have the staff available to do that project. Well, we can have the staff available to do that project and put good information in the CRM system so that we can forecast and plan. And so then having that multidisciplinary approach and t- discussion, and we solved all of that in that instance without doing any new tooling, just increasing visibility and having the conversations.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And also compensation for salespeople, if it's only driven by the days closed, they Mm -hmm. probably will not enter good data.
0: Yeah, yes. So
2: you, (laughs) and that's a relative piece. It's again, it has to be part of everybody's objective. Data is what we produce. Mm And that has to be reflected in compensational conversations and promotional conversations. So a lot of it is through that. And again, it's management of the salespeople. We put that system in and then later I had a conversation with the head of sales and marketing department and her, she is like, yeah, I understand all of that, but salespeople don't like doing it. What can you give me from systems perspective to make them do it? Like nothing, yeah. nothing. It's not a system issue. It's not a technology issue. I mean, I can help enter data. I can put something on their phones where they can dictate. If they're not gonna do it, it ain't gonna like you have to put it on their objectives and you have to pay them accordingly.
0: There seems to be a theme. You are the now the third Julia from New York (laughs) that we've had on the podcast. And on a similar note, Julia Lane is a professor at NYU. She has created a very interesting data literacy program, but that was one of the things that we talked about as well. Is that you know, and and she's an economist by trade, and so it's talking about we have to create the right incentives, you know, for people to do these things because it's we're all come to work. Um, Yes, we you know most of us are lucky, or many of us are lucky to work in something that we enjoy, but it is still a transaction, you know. Whereas I don't always want to do many things that might be good for, that might be good, but if I don't see the benefit or there is no declared benefit, why am I going to do that? Because I just want to go home and spend time with my kids or family or something else. Um, So, so yes, clearing and seeking the value and making clear the value, whether that's through contractual or, um, you know, other means that they can be more near and felt. I think that's like Mm -hmm. the immediacy is like some of that thing, right? Hey, you want your commission at the end of the month? You have to both make sales and, right? Yeah. Like it's got exactly. that, that immediate effect. That that That's how the other thing is finding the way to have the immediacy, find it traction, tricks or anything that people feel the immediacy of something. Because otherwise they lose. Like, well, it can just feel like doing rites and rituals because they don't know what it's going to do.
2: There is understanding that you do it because you understand, but also you have to have an enforcement function. Mm-hmm. Because people and
0: people. Yes. You know? <laughs> we, lo- we love people, but people, we do also know
1: people.
2: <laughs> well, yes. I mean.
1: So, yeah. to close out, um, Julia, you mentioned early on that you have some, you know, maybe slightly controversial takes on data quality. Um, <laughs> would you mind sharing one or two of those controversial takes with us?
2: So, the first one is uh, uh, the data quality is uh, data quality scorecards are mostly useless if you want to use them for business value, unless you have full business support to fix the issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That gets, uh, I know it doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but if you say it in front of, uh, data professionals who have been on this business for a while, uh, yeah, it, it gets <laughs> a reaction out of people, uh, The other one is not so much about data quality. It's actually data lineage. That's another one. It's one of those sacred things that everybody data lineage programs. And my take is that, again, unless you have a regulatory focused program, data lineage is not worth the money. There is no business value to be gotten out of data lineage. That's worth the amount of money you're going to put in getting it. You're much better in, if you can engineer it from the start, I mean, data lineage is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Having data lineage is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And if you are startup engineering, so you have data lineage as a like outcome of your operations, that's great. That's metadata driven architecture. That's wonderful. Doing it after the fact, I so far have not been able to find, um, there is, you know, what's the business, enough business value to side uh, to get funded. Um, the other one is not so controversial, but I actually had a chance yesterday. I have a Julius law of data movement. And where it comes from, uh, been in a lot of companies where I say, we don't want to move the data. Let's not move the data. Let's keep the data. Baby, we have way too many copies of data. Let's not move the data. Moving of the data is bad. Like, do everything federated. Don't move the data. <laughs> yeah. So I, I eventually came up with Julia's law, uh, for data movement. And the law is, and again, it's very obvious once I say it. Uh, the amount of data movement in the organization is inversely proportional to its data management maturity. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to move as much data if you have common keys. So if you have master data management on gordian, so every client ever always have only one ID, mm-hmm. every product is fully identified, has only one ID. Your reference data is management managed end to end. Greece is always Greece. Doesn't matter where. Then you don't need to move the data so you can integrate it and bring it to the common keys. You still have, make have volume considerations for moving the data, because sometimes you can just can't do things in memory, Mm -hmm. the volume is too hard. That, there is nothing you can do with that. But a lot of times when you move the data is because you want to integrate it with a different source and transform it, and you need to bring the common keys in. And so that's the main reason. So I have like, when those conversations happen, let's not move the data. I'm like, how are we doing with uh, master data management? Mm -hmm. Oh, what's that? I'm like, okay.
0: There is hope for the world around this topic. It is nice to see the rise of integrations and systems and APIs so such that if you are newer in a newer organization or a new entity, or you migrate to some of these newer platforms and newer processes, that you can, if you integrate those things well, you can fall into good master mm-hmm. data management because you've kept everything, like your CRM system plugs into your operations system, plugs into your accounting that is all possible these days. Um, so, it, it's it's um, a potential future for some of these some of these newer entities that they end up with, you know, good MDM even without knowing that they did.
2: <laughs> could be. I could mean, be. It still possible. I think it could be. Yeah, it could. I be. mean, that, going back to, uh, I'd like. That's why I think business schools and technology schools need to teach it. So it's uh It doesn't need to have like. You know, advisor who needs to convert the CEO away from fundraising or digital to the revenue mm-hmm. into let's put data stuff in.
1: Yes, I agree. <laughs> all right, Julie. Well, thank you very much uh, for all the insights today. Um, it's been a great conversation, and wonderful to have you on.
2: Thank you, thank you. This was great conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host, Lee Harper, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.